Welcome to the God of the Word Exodus Study. I'm Debbie Hammond. I just love the Exodus Study for several reasons. But one is that it's just so fun to discover that the part of the Bible most likely to be described as boring in parts is actually fascinating and includes several of the Bible's best love stories. The goal today is to introduce you to the God of the Word studies, our method, and this Exodus study in particular. I want to make sure you're informed about what to expect, what this study is, and what it's not, especially if you're new to our studies. One thing God of the Word is not is a comparison of world religions. It's not an apologetic of Christianity in the scriptures. It was written with a conviction that absolute truth exists outside of ourselves and is found in the Bible. It was written with the conviction that the Bible is completely accurate, though not exhaustive, and and that it's God's self-revelation, written primarily to enable us to know him. Our goal is to get to know the God of the Bible, the God of the Word, in a personal way. Now, if you're not there yet or haven't come to these conclusions about the scriptures, I invite you to continue anyway. All I ask is that you be honest with yourself about your openness to really finding and knowing God. In J.I. Packer's modern classic book, Knowing God, he borrows a helpful illustration that depicts two kinds of interest in Christian things. First, there's the interest that's like that of a person sitting high up on a balcony, observing travelers on a road below. These balconiers, he says, can overhear the travelers talk and chat with them. They may comment critically on the way that the travelers walk, or they may discuss questions about the road, how it can exist or lead anywhere, what might be seen from different points along it, and so forth. But, They are onlookers, and so their problems are theoretical only. By contrast, the traveler's interest is practical. At times, they may intersect with the theoretical, but their interest is is primarily of the which way to go and how to make it type, problems which call not merely for comprehension, but for decision and action too. End of quote. The God of the Word Bible studies provide tools to help travelers. Although we'll most certainly consider ideas about God, as travelers, we won't be satisfied with merely knowing about Him. Our quest is to know Him. Sincere seekers who come to Him for answers are never disappointed. In God of the Word, our particular approach is to see the Bible in context. To do that, we must discover how all the parts of the Bible fit together into one grand story. The two previous God of the Word studies cover the one biblical book of Genesis. But don't be discouraged if the Exodus study is your starting place. I'm going to include a summary of the book of Genesis today. Although our current study, Exodus, covers the next four books of the Bible. It's simply called by the name of the first book, Exodus, because all the events of these four books revolve around Israel's exodus from Egypt. That event, known as the Exodus, 
is central in the story of the Old Testament, much in the way that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are central to the part of the Bible we call the New Testament. There's one human character who dominates the story story in these four books of our study, and that's Moses. So today, in addition to summarizing Genesis, we'll also consider Moses and his role. He was God's instrument to teach Israel who God is. Fortunately for us, God instructed Moses to write down what he learned. So let me get you caught up, as I promised, in case this is your starting point in God of the Word. For everyone else, it'll just be a good review of what we've learned so far. Genesis is a book of beginnings. It tells of the creation of the world and also the beginning of the nation of Israel. The creation account introduces God as the eternally existing one who initiated and created the universe. Human beings were made in his image, and in the beginning, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, lived in perfect harmony with him. In Genesis 3, the serpent is introduced without any explanation about his origin or identity. However, the New Testament calls him the devil or Satan. He convinces the first woman, Eve, that to challenge God's authority. Eve, in turn, convinces her husband, Adam, to participate in the rebellion. According to the New Testament, their disobedience was sin, and it initiated a breach in their fellowship with their Creator. Since that time, every human being has inherited a sin nature that prevents us from knowing and enjoying God in the way we were created to know and enjoy Him. Separation from God, the source of life, meant death, both physical and spiritual. And the creation fell under a curse, a curse of sin and death. However, according to Genesis 3.15, God promised Adam and Eve he would crush the head of the serpent through a son of Eve, a Messiah, a deliverer, the hope of humankind hinged upon the coming of this individual and his effective work. Now, the devastating effects of sin multiplied over time, and fewer and fewer people sought to know God. He sent a widespread flood and confused the languages of human beings in judgment of their extreme depravity. The genealogy in Genesis 11 traces the descendants of Adam's son, Seth, to Abram, or Abraham, the man through whom God would fulfill his promise to send a deliverer. Abraham, his son Isaac, and Isaac's son Jacob were the patriarchs of the people later called Israel. God gave Abraham unique promises, including the land of Canaan, many descendants, and blessing to him and through him to the nations of the world. Abraham was a man of great faith. He believed God would fulfill his promises, even though, humanly speaking, their fulfillment seemed unlikely. Isaac inherited the promises God had given his father, and his son Jacob inherited those promises from him. However, faith didn't come as easily to Jacob as it had to Abraham. Jacob was a deceiver and a schemer. 
Nevertheless, God was faithful to him, transforming his character through the trials of life. Eventually, God renamed Jacob Israel as an indication of his transformation. Jacob fathered 12 sons, the forefathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph was the favored son of Jacob. Near the end of Genesis, his jealous brother sold him into slavery in Egypt. Through a series of providentially orchestrated events, Joseph actually rose to the highest position in Egypt under Pharaoh. Shortly after Joseph's exaltation, a widespread famine forced Joseph's family, to, Joseph's brothers, to travel to Egypt in search of food. They didn't initially recognize their brother, but eventually Joseph revealed himself and had them bring all the members of their household to Egypt where he could provide for them. So Genesis ends, leaving us in anticipation of just how God would fulfill his promises, how he would make Israel a blessing to the entire world and send a Messiah. And as we turn the page to Exodus, we discover that the children of Israel remained in Egypt for over 400 years. Now, the Bible doesn't give us all the reasons why they were there so long, but it does give us one. The people living in Canaan, the promised land, were wicked. God was patient with them and didn't intend to remove them from their land and give it to Israel until, based on his assessment, the Canaanite sin reached its full measure. Now, we can suppose a number of other explanations for why God left Israel in Egypt so long. One was to give them time to grow into a large people group so that they were more capable of occupying and holding land in Canaan. Additionally, Egypt was one of the more advanced cultures of the day. It seems likely that the formerly nomadic Israelites would have developed culturally in Egypt, learning, for example, to read and write. As it turned out, their ancestors penned all or almost all the books of the Bible. As I've said, God's revealed himself to us in the scriptures. In this way, God fulfilled his promise to bless the world through Israel. But also, Jesus Christ the Messiah was Jewish. And God's also revealed himself to us in him. In the context of the larger story of the Bible, we see Genesis indicating that God worked through Abraham's family to reveal himself to humanity. Our first principle is that the Bible teaches that the only true living God has revealed himself to humanity and that he is knowable. He's knowable. How familiar are you with his self-revelation? When you pick up the Bible, do you tend to pick and choose the parts that you find most interesting to read? Or are you convinced that there must be important things to learn about God in books like Leviticus, Amos, and Philemon? No doubt there are some parts of the Bible that are more easily understood and that advance the storyline more than others. But if the entire Bible is God's word, Perhaps we should consider that every part contains important information about him. 
Well, since we're travelers and not merely balconiers, we're not only interested in the fact that God has revealed himself and is knowable, as important as that is, we are also interested in the relationship we can have with this knowable God. How may we know him is how we may know him is partly answered by examining the relationship between God and those who sought to know him in the books of our Exodus study. Moses is the central human figure in these books, and he certainly was a man who knew God intimately. We could, in fact, say Moses is one of the most outstanding figures of biblical history. The Bible mentions him 846 times. He's widely considered to be the author of the first five books of the Bible. The New Testament credits him with their writing. The books covered in this study begin with Moses' birth and end with his death. He was born in Egypt to an Israelite couple from the tribe of Levi. He lived 120 years, spending the first 40 in Egypt, the second 40 as a fugitive in Midian, and the last 40 leading Israel out of bondage to the edge of the promised land, the land of promised Canaan. Acts 7.22 says that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Yet the scriptures also say that he was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. One could easily argue that Moses was one of the greatest leaders in all history. While leading a large group of slaves in their transformation into the nation of Israel, He instituted Israel's civic, religious, and moral law. And he led the people for 40 years on a journey to a land they'd eventually claim as their own. Not only was he a great leader and biblical author, Moses was also a prophet. He spoke to God with an intimacy that the Bible describes as face-to-face and spent long periods of time alone with God. He argued with God. He pled with him. He cried out to him. And he enjoyed just being in God's presence. Through men like Moses, we learn that God is only knowable on a factual level, but also on a personal one. That's our second principle, that God is not only knowable on a factual level, but on a personal level. Some have believed that the people who lived in Moses' age only knew God by obeying his commands, and that's a grave misunderstanding. Moses knew God because he was a man of faith. Salvation's always been by faith in God's deliverer, whom the New Testament reveals as Jesus. Through faith, a person in any era may enter a relationship with the living God. The New Testament speaks of God adopting them as his own children and becoming our father. Dr. Packer says it this way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child 
and having God as his father. If this isn't the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that's distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Now, as travelers, we're eager to know God in this personal way. Once we've come off the balcony and began our pilgrimage of faith in the living God, we may continue to face challenges to our ability to view God as a perfect, loving, heavenly Father. We may be challenged at times by our own senses. Perhaps he seems distant to us. Our own reasoning may challenge us, insisting that our sin and shortcomings make us unlovable to him. Have you ever felt like that? These challenges, however, are the result of looking to ourselves for answers, believing that we can know truth by our own experience alone. We must remember that God has promised to be ever-present with his children and that his word is the standard of truth, not our own feelings and experiences. Moses was a great man, a great leader, and also God's son. His story, along with the story told in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are the focus of our study. Now, because a good amount of action takes place in the book of Exodus, a full half of our study, the first six lessons, will be spent covering that book. The book of Exodus continues the Genesis narrative. At the conclusion of Genesis, Israel's family is happily situated, well cared for, and living independently in the region of Goshen in Egypt. But when we turn the page to Exodus, we're surprised to discover that the reigning pharaoh no longer knows of Joseph and his assistance to Egypt. And the Israelites have been forced into slavery. They're oppressed and miserable. Nevertheless, they've greatly increased in numbers and are continuing to grow. It was into this desperate situation that the Hebrew or Israelite baby Moses was born. We're told that through an unusual set of circumstances, a princess of Egypt raised him. He grew up with all the advantages of royalty. Now, we don't know when he became aware that he was actually of Israelite origin, but according to the book of Acts, Moses saw himself as the deliverer of his people. However, initially, he didn't seek God's will in the matter, and he attempted to do it on his own, culminating in his murder of a man and his resulting escape from Egypt at age 40. <clears throat> Moses spent the second 40 years of his life in Midian as a shepherd. While he endured hardship in these years, they were equally important in preparing him for God's assignment. At 80 years of age, God called Moses back to Egypt to deliver his people. Moses' character had been reshaped. The once confident leader now felt ill-equipped. But 
this time, he understood he could only accomplish the task in God's strength. A lesson well learned. Moses and his brother Aaron stood before Pharaoh and demanded the release of the Israelites. And God brought ten plagues on Egypt. After the tenth, Pharaoh finally released the Israelites. The plagues were important in teaching the Israelites and the Egyptians alike something about who God is. Walking out of Egypt, you see, was only the beginning of the Israelites' exodus. They physically left the land, but they still had a lot of Egypt within them. The remainder of Exodus, all of Leviticus and the first part of Numbers, tell us of the year Moses and the Israelites spent at Mount Sinai. There, God met with Moses and gave him a civil law by which to govern this newly independent nation. Israel participated in a covenant ceremony with God and agreed to the covenant. They received detailed instructions from God and built a worship center called a tabernacle, where God would manifest his presence. Moses' brother Aaron was chosen by God to be the high priest and to govern Israel's religious life. Next is the book of Leviticus. In it, God taught his people to distinguish right and wrong. Its theme is holiness. While understanding Leviticus is critical to understanding God's character and the lives of the Israelites, little movement of the greater story occurs, so we're going to cover this book in just two lessons. Now, I should mention that as we begin covering larger portions of the Bible text like this, our lessons will direct you to the specific passages that will be of most help in grasping the main ideas. Well, you're going to benefit tremendously if you choose to read all the chapters that surround those passages. You won't need to read all of the text in order to complete your lesson and follow the storyline. I believe our two lessons in, Le in Leviticus will give you an appreciation like you've never had before for the great value of this book in the scriptures. The book of Numbers opens with a census being taken of the generation of Israelites that left Egypt and ends with a census being taken of the generation who were young children at the time of the Exodus or born thereafter. The two censuses explain the name of the book, Numbers. Partway through this book, Israel finally leaves Sinai for the Promised Land. But sadly, when they arrive, they refuse to trust God to give it to them and to enter it. Since the people wouldn't trust God, he left them to wander in the desert for 40 years until that entire adult generation died. God said he'd bring their children into Canaan instead. Numbers is really a book about trust. The failure of the older generation depicts the life of the defeated Christian and also a false Christian. We'll spend two lessons in this book as well. Deuteronomy contains three great sermons given to Israel by Moses before his death. Moses reminded this younger generation in the sermons of their history. He reviewed the law and he concluded with important summarizing thoughts. The sermons really bring the heart of God's laws into sharper focus reminding us that 
The purpose of the commands is to teach us to love him and others and to represent him well. A key principle in the book, often called the Deuteronomic principle, reinforces that obedience to God's commands will bring blessing to our lives. When we live as our Creator teaches, our lives work so much better. However, disobedience leads to disaster. And in that context, Moses gives an amazing and a terrifying prophecy about Israel's future. We'll discover the first two Deuteronomic sermons in one lesson, and then the final sermon in another. Well, Israel knew little about the God of their fathers when they left Egypt. God used Moses to teach them who he is in order that they might know him and represent him to the rest of the world. An important passage found in Exodus 19, 5 and 6 helps explain that to personally know God is to be obligated to make him known to others. The verse says that Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. Priests serve as representatives. Interestingly, in the New Testament, all believers in Jesus Christ are described as priests, representing God in the world. So our third principle is that knowing God obligates us to make him known to others. In other words, he brings us into relationship with him, not only for our benefit, but for the benefit of others as well. This was the role Israel was to play in history. God chose Israel so that the entire world might know him. We come to our Exodus study then with the expectation that we will know God more intimately through the pages of his word and that this knowledge must impact the way we interact with others. So let me ask you, how clear is it to others that you know him? Dr. Packer suggests that those who know God are characterized by several qualities, qualities we're going to see in Moses. One of these qualities, according to Packer, is a great energy or passion for God. He points out that this energy is often shown in Bible characters by their reaction to what he calls the anti-God trends which they see operating around them. Are you willing to call to attention things in which ways in which God's honor is being directly or indirectly jeopardized, even at your own personal risk? Packer points out that this energy is not only shown visibly, but also in prayer. How much energy do you put into your conversations with God? A second quality Packer identifies as a characteristic of those who know God are great thoughts about him, so that we view God and self with a correct perspective. Moses spoke to God intimately, yet the scriptures tell us that he was the most humble man on the face of the planet. How is that possible? Because Moses had great thoughts about and a great awareness of God's holy character. Packer's third identifying quality of those who know God is great boldness for him. 
Moses was willing to stand alone for God. It didn't matter what others thought. Are we more concerned about what others think or what God thinks? Finally, Packer says that those who know God have great contentment in him. What about you? Are you content and at peace simply because your intimacy with God has made you so and regardless of your circumstances? It's our Heavenly Father's desire that we know him experientially and are completely satisfied in him. Well, we began by stating our goal was to personally know God. Some Christians know a great deal about God. You may be able to describe his attributes and even quote Bible verses that support that knowledge. We may be able to navigate our way around the Bible. Perhaps we even counsel others. But all of this is very different from really knowing God. As we engage in this Exodus study, it'll be continue, necessary to continually ask ourselves, how well do I really know him? Do people look at us and say, there's something very different about them? They claim to know God. Maybe they do.